Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Antonio Galoni of Venus Media back on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Levy, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here with you today. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's great to be back. So there have been some changes since the last time you were on the show. What's new with Venice Media and what's new with you? I just think about some of the experiences that we've had this year that are things that I could have never imagined a few years back. We've been to Google twice this year, and you know we have this interactive map project that we're working on. So one of the ideas with Venice is that I don't want people to be just solely focused on points. I think it's a result of this incredible obsession with points. A lot of it is driven by people getting so much content delivered to them at once that the only possible way that you can possibly deal with this in between picking up your kids or making dinner or dropping off the dry cleaning is just to say, just tell me what the 10 best wines are, the 20 best wines are. Because if a publication puts out three or 4,000 reviews at once, that's the only way our brains can really process this stuff is just to kind of filter it somehow. And that's kind of the logical way. That's one of the reasons that Venice publishes every day, because I want people to be to re- actually read the stuff that we write along with the score is important, but it's not the only thing. So one of the reasons we adopted a continual publishing model is because we see that there's much greater efficiency putting out smaller articles that people actually read. So, you know, we were talking about Sandlin's before. That was a winery that we featured in an article last year that we did on undiscovered or new producers that were in their first or second year of commercial production. And there were maybe a dozen producers in there. And that article was read, was one of the most popular articles that we've ever read. And they weren't massively expensive or necessarily rare wines per se or from historic vineyards, but it was new, new estates that nobody had really heard of, not too many people had heard of, but it was also delivered in a modern contemporary format that people can kind of actually read in between whatever else they've got going on in their lives. So there's a lot of things on Venice that have nothing to do with points, nothing to do with scores, nothing to do with ratings. And interactive maps is one of those one of those tools where we've started off with Piedmont, but we'll do it in other parts of the world. And it, it's our multimedia approach that brings together the maps with our database, with video, with photography. So in June, well, you know, in February, we developed this, our first map, a Barolo map. In March, I showed it to Google. They flipped out over it in a good way. And in June, they invited us to come to the office to show it to their engineers and kick the tires and tell them all the things that we didn't like. And I, well, first of all, you know, spending a day there is a 
kind of a life-changing experience. I mean, you don't want to leave because you're just surrounded by all these young people and all this energy and all this buzz. You can really feel it. I mean, you know, they, they prepare like 30,000 meals a day there for their employees. Every restaurant has a different theme. And if you How's want- the wine list? The wine list, I don't know. I think that maybe we could get hired to do the Google wine list. That, but they, they uh, you know, they've got like a teaching kitchens in there and they have- you know, if you want to know how many calories are in your plate, you know, they'll, you know, it's all you available. I mean, it. It's just crazy. <laughs> you know, there's probably, you know, algorithms behind everything, but the place is an inspiring place. There's a reason why this is a great company. We got to spend, we've been there a couple of times, but we got to spend a day there in June just with the maps. And it was amazing because people were asking us questions. And I, you, after about five minutes, you really understand that what they want is for you to tell them something that they haven't heard from somebody else. If you merely tell them the bugs that they already know exist. They don't value you too much. They really want you to tell them something that they haven't heard before. And boy, I mean, if you can't get turned on by that, inspired by that, you're, you, got, you have no heartbeat. I mean, you're dead. So going to Google, talking about our maps, writing an article for their enterprise site on how we're using maps, that was a, you know, a huge highlight. Um, you know, we did a partnership with Seller Tracker over the summer which um, you know, I've known Eric Levine for maybe 10 years and we finally got to do something together. So that was fun. And then more recently, about a month and a half ago, we announced our acquisition of IWC, Steve Tanzer's publication. That seemed to catch a lot of attention. Yeah, it was great. I think great for everybody. So, I mean, that's kind of in a nutshell, our 2014, you know, we've now got, we've doubled our readership now through this acquisition. We have customers in, in about 60 countries around the world. It's a global platform as we had envisaged. Um, and again, when I think about 2014, it's really our first full year of operating. So we're pretty jazzed, pretty tired, looking forward to a day off or two. And, uh, you know, one of the things I thought gave you a leg up when you started your own business is that you were able to take your own reviews with you and people search for old notes, could find them on your new program on Venice Media. And I feel with the Tanzer acquisition, that brings a depth of tasting notes that you wouldn't expect from a year and a half old operation where now people can search back to the tasting notes from the 80s. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing because Steve, I mean, the IWC started in 1985, so almost 30 years, the oldest independent American wine publication when we bought it. We've put everything together with the goal of one plus one equals, you know, 10. And yeah, there's all of Steve's tasting notes going back all the way as far back as his own site had. So his and Ian Dagata's, Joel Payne's, Josh Reynolds, David Schiltbeck when he was writing as well for Steve. So um, now we have global coverage of the world. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, the whole idea with Venice from the very beginning was that I didn't want to build something that was too much associated with me. I had kind of seen like the path where that leads. You have to be very careful when you create something that is indelibly linked with one person if you don't set up the mechanism for succession and a way that somebody else can kind of pick that up. It's kind of like fashion. I mean, you can, there are definitely cases where a person's name can become a brand, Bloomberg, Armani. I mean, there's a lot of, of, of examples, but you have to have really sharp management and a long-term view to creating that. And if you don't, then you have potentially an issue where you just wonder to what extent are things linked to a single person. And I just didn't want to have that problem down the, in the future. You know, I sort of try to make 20 and 30 year decisions and they're certainly not all going to be right, but I'm pretty sure that 
starting something that's linked with one person, I kind of have seen where that goes and, and uh, I just didn't want to repeat something I had already seen and kind of know what the future is like. That doesn't happen too often in life. So the whole idea with Venice is, you know, we want to build a platform. We want it to be a place for the best and the brightest. And, uh, you know, it took us a while, obviously, to do that. You can't build Rome in a day. But by bringing on Steve and his team now, we have a group of very experienced people in wine, very highly respected, great tasters, great people, which is to me just as important, if not even more important. The human values are really important to me. So now we have a team and yes, now we can cover the world, whether it's Argentina or or South Africa or more coverage of Burgundy or Bordeaux or um, the Rhone, for example, Spain, to obviously to a degree that we couldn't do it when it was just me putting out the content. So yeah, we're really excited. And that was the whole idea. So the, the database does have you know, all of the historic IWC stuff, plus of course my stuff. And now we're going to be very thoughtful and strategic about where, where are the areas that we want to be really strong, you know? So one of the things that I have always done is a lot of verticals and retrospective tastings. I think that Venice has the, you know, if you'll forgive me, but I, I think Venice has the best database for especially older Italian wines, Monfortino, Soldera, you know, every vintage of Solaya, every vintage of Masetto, every vintage of a lot of benchmark wines. And you can go and get a pretty great education for yourself in a pretty short amount of time if you wanna know those wines. Even some of the wines from the south, Rosso del Conte, Mastro Berardino Taurasis, those are all very heavily represented. And that to me is really important because one of the things that people always ask about wines like that is when should I drink it? Should I drink it now? Should I drink it in five years, 10 years, et cetera? So I think that the historical archive is very important. And so we're now going to seek to to build that in places where maybe we don't have it as much so that... I mean, I started to do this with Napa Valley, complete vertical of Dalla Valle Maya, of Opus One, which is one of our most popular articles of Don Howell Mountain. There's a lot of Mayakamas Cabernet notes. And we will continue to build that out because I think it's really important to have the historical fabric of a wine so that then you can write something intelligent about the newest release and people can go and read about, you know, vintages that might have similar characteristics or whatever. When did you first meet Stephen Tanzer? Oof, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. I've been his subscriber, his customer for a long time. And uh, I wanted to meet him. So we went to dinner. We went to a dinner at Alto. <laughs> we had, I remember because I, you know, I have a pretty good memory for wines. And he brought a 96 Seraphin Charm Chambertin. And I've always loved Seraphin. Just really beautiful wines that are really transparent. That vintage, that wine, it was just fantastic that night. I brought 71 Conterno and um, we had a great old time at Alto. <laughs> so I don't, that was probably close to 10 years ago. But yeah, I don't remember the exact year. What's he like as a person? Well, Steve is a jewel of a guy. Uh, you won't meet a more genuine, down to earth, and yet incredibly experienced person in, in wine. When, when I, I remember when I first started going to, going to Burgundy, just for fun, just to taste, to buy wine, years ago, I don't remember exactly how many, but people, if you asked people, winemakers and people in the know would always say Steve Tanzer has the best palate for Burgundy. He's just incredibly precise and detail-oriented. I know that when I would read some of the articles that he wrote about regions that I cover as well, and I knew exactly what tastings he had done and how many wines with how many people, and I would just be amazed at how accurate he was, knowing that sometimes he liked to do tastings that were bigger than mine, with more wines, we're talking about Nebbiolo in particular, high acid often, high tannin wines, young, and he was just spot on. So, I mean, it's really quite remarkable. So I've always just admired his tasting ability, his writing ability, and a level of integrity on a personal level that 
is very, very high. And that to me is really important. So he's just a great partner, great person to work with, great person to learn from. And, you know, we're just really both excited to be working together. What do you think the strengths of that team are? Andy Agata, Joel Payne, Josh Reynolds, what do they bring to the table? When I and our team, when we were looking at who would we want to hire, what are the the areas that we want to focus on where what are our readers are asking about and sort of look you know we talked about steve obviously very precise and detail oriented also is somebody who's run his own business for several decades so that's always helpful because writers are kind of artists and and sometimes you know timeliness and meeting deadlines are not always our strengths as a group so having somebody who obviously has kind of called the shots for many, many years is a huge asset. With Josh, I've known him maybe even longer than Steve. You know, he's one of those guys who's, you know, been in the business since the 80s. He's done retail. He worked for Neil Rosenthal for about 12 years, worked for Steve for about 10 years. He probably knows more about the areas he doesn't cover than a lot of people who spend all their time with those wines. One of those encyclopedic people, great passion, enthusiasm, and um, I just think the world of Josh. So, you know, I think that his strengths are, for us, will be Spain and the Rhone Valley in particular. But I think more than anything, he's one of those people that I don't, I think he's kind of an under the radar critic. A lot of people just don't know how talented and exceptionally gifted he is. What a great taster he is. So part of my job is to make sure that people know. <laughs> Do you so, feel like you've given those writers more outreach now? Like that well, there's no question that all of these all of our writers are going to have more outreach because we publish in a continual fashion. You know, we publish right now it's the holidays, but on a normal week we have something new on the website every day. So if you're reading Venice, you really need to check it pretty much every day because there's something new. And that means that before those guys were publishing once every two months on Steve's old site with the occasional intra-issue feature, but now they can publish pretty much whenever they want. They can publish weekly. And that's just more times that people are going to see your name. I mean, if you're publishing once every two months and for whatever reason, somebody doesn't see your article, they might not see your name for another couple of months and wonder, hey, I wonder if that guy's, you know, what are, what are they doing? Are they still around? So yeah, Venice gives all writers a much bigger platform for the simple reason that we're publishing all the time and not always big thousand wine articles. Sometimes it's an article in a restaurant or a collectible wine or a value wine. And all of those guys will contribute to those columns as well. You know, Ian, I, you know, I've spent the last few months looking at his book on the native varieties of Italy, which is just, I, I mean, I, I look at this book and I, I can't even begin to think about how does one even collect, assemble, digest, and then put into some package this information. It's just vast. Uh, and that's it's a great book for anybody who wants to really learn more about the origins of it, it, the Italian grape varieties, whether it's Nebbiolo or Fiano di Avellino or whatever it is. It's um, really a reference point. And he's a guy with great enthusiasm. You can't talk to Ian for more than about two minutes and not be laughing about something. <laughs> And I think that at the end of the day, you know, we, we can't take ourselves too seriously. There's a certain element of funness, I think, that has to exist. It can't just be all dry reviews. And Ian has the joie de vivre Italian style, <laughs> Dolce Vita, I guess. But he's from Rome, and his ancestry is Roman and Canadian. But I mean, he's just got a great, sunny disposition and just a real joy. And obviously, his, I mean, people know him mostly for his knowledge on Italian wines, which is pretty amazing. I mean, he's pretty much the only person I would want to work with on Italian wines, I think, in the world. Um, but as I wrote, when I when I, when I told our readers what was happening, I said, this is the guy I think the world of. But, you know, it's not just Italian wines for Ian. He's been going to 
Alsace for something like 30 years. Uh, I ran into him in Bordeaux in, in the spring. And even though I'll be doing Bordeaux for Venice, we may publish an occasional vertical or some other article from, from Ian on Bordeaux. So, I mean, he's just, you know, he's one of those guys with a great, really broad view of wine. I think that's very important. I think there's a, a danger in being, um, in being too specialized because you don't understand the whole world. And so that's, that's Ian. And then Joel Payne, you know, is an expert on Germany, Austria, the Loire, and he'll probably be taking on even more responsibilities with us shortly. His first articles have been really well received. You know, uh, uh, just one article just on Chenin Blanc, another article just on Loire Valley, Cab Franc. I mean, you can't really, where are you going to read about this stuff? I mean, there's just not that many sources to go and get that level of coverage on these wines. So we're really excited to have Joel. He's done some verticals for us. And that's something that all the critics are going to do. So that's, I mean, I think it's a really, it's a really solid team. You know, there's still a few other people that we want to hire, but this is a good first step. And obviously, you know, sort of integrating people is always a challenge. So it's, I mean, not so much that it's a challenge, it's just a, it takes time. You know, we're at Venice, we're used to doing things very fast. Um, everything is extremely digital. We can publish things immediately we can correct things on the website immediately i can run everything on venice i can run it on my phone whether it's our payment processing editorial whatever it is a totally mobile business and i think that's a level of technology that is going to take a while for a few for some people to really kind of get a hold of but i mean if if i publish a review and it, there's something wrong and you send me a note i can correct it immediately anywhere i am so uh, we've really invested and in, made made big strides to really want to have a technologically advanced website out there. And that though, that does take a little bit of time to get used to. Um, what happens is that the learning curve though is very steep. And I can just see that, for example, the amount of time that I need in my office after a trip has been cut down significantly each of the last four or five years as we've done more with technology. So I think that the gains, the efficiency gains are really life-changing, but you got to kind of go up the curve first and that takes a while. It's okay. How do you think it's coming across to customers, people who are reading and subscribing? What's the reception? What's worked and what hasn't worked with Venice Media? We've addressed some of the things that probably weren't working so great. One of them being, obviously when there's only one person writing, number one, your regional diversity is lim is obviously limited. The frequency with which you can put out in-depth articles is somewhat limited. So that was, you know, we've addressed that by hiring a bunch of people. Uh, I think our, our website is very good in some ways, but I think particularly in search, we're still working through some issues and the IWC acquisition has actually created a lot of complexity. We've got things like producer names where there's seven different ways that a winery is listed. That's because we have you mentioned this before, but we have my database from Piedmont Report, which goes back to 04, then about six and a half years of stuff that was originally published in The Wine Advocate, and then all the stuff that I've written for Venice. That's fairly clean, but even there, occasionally something pops up, a wine name is wrong or listed more than once. But now with Steve's, which was created in a basically by a third party, so with less, you could say, immediate oversight. And so there's more room for little slight imperfections. And as you know, in data, that stuff just kills you. So we've got these issues now where we've got, you know, I don't know, a winery that might be listed five different ways. I mean, you see this and you just can't believe it. So this is kind of what we're working through right now is to clean up the database. I'd say that that's, that's our biggest sort of Achilles heel right now is getting the data clean. Um, that's just so fundamental for all the things that we want to do in the future. I'd say that, you know, that's, that's one thing we have, 
done a lot to make the site faster. We've done a lot to make the site more visually appealing. Uh, you know, the great thing about Venice is it's a hundred percent subscriber supported. There's no advertising of any kind, no sponsorships of any kind. And that just means that we have a very tight relationship with our readers. I mean, if somebody says you guys ought to do this, or you should consider that if it's a good idea, we'll put it into place. I and mean, we don't have to ask anybody to do anything. And our customers mean the world to us. So we're very keen. We're, we, we pay a lot of attention to what our customers think. And we try to anywhere that we can, we try to implement fixes to make the user experience as good as possible. Ultimately, it's, I think, one of the rare cases in in a project like this where the end user can really play a role in shaping the future by telling us, do this, do that, or this doesn't work, we like this. And you know, we approach our work. I mean, it was a great lesson to go to Google. It was so humbling because if anybody could afford to take the attitude of being arrogant or difficult or who are you, that would certainly be a company that would be more than entitled to have some of that. And instead, what we found was the exact opposite. That is the definition of greatness is humility. They were so open, so receptive, could not have been more engaging, could not have been more interested. And that was a good lesson for us in terms of how how we approach our, our customer. And I'd like to see if we can replicate that level of total openness of just trying to see what's out there of receptiveness of incorporating feedback so i mean it's a learning process the site is a year and a half old maybe in 19 months now there's still a lot more to go i think the next 19 months 18 months are going to be much more exciting than the last so when you put the two together iwc and venice did you find that the score ranges kind of matched up did you have consistency that way well, I mean, you know, one of the things that was interesting with Steve is that I think by and large, things line up as much as they, they can line up considering that everybody's human and different. So there's going to be areas where the, in most cases, you're going to see that the scores are not that far apart, but in some cases they are. And I mean, that's fine. I, I think that that's just sort of the nature of, of, of life. You know, I mean, you're wearing a blue shirt. I'm wearing a checkered shirt. I mean, you know, nobody views something exactly the same. I'm sorry. So, I do have checkered shirts. I kept, no, no, I know. If but, you'd asked me, I would have changed. But we're not looking for cookie cutter people, you know, and nor am I looking for somebody who has necessarily my same preferences, nor am I changing anything that anybody else writes to make it match with mine. Because at the end of the day, people have to, they have to be accountable for their own work. So... I mean, you know, I, I'll tell you, you know, when I worked for Bob Parker, he never once changed a single score of mine or asked me to change a single score of mine or asked me why this, my favorite producer getting, why is my favorite producer getting lower scores or why is this producer that I don't like getting big scores? Never once, to his great credit, never once said, you know, never once tried to mold me. So therefore I must assume that that's true of everybody else. Never once tried to say, you know, this is our way of thinking. So you've got to sort of fit into this. Now, obviously that can also backfire if you have, if you haven't picked people, pro, you know, the right people. So you have to kind of find the balance there. But one of the things that attracted me to Steve and his team is that I think that we're mostly on the same, we have mostly a very similar philosophy of wine. And therefore I think that the range is mostly match up. I mean, Steve has a you know, most people know he's got a reputation for being very conservative and, and there's a lot of value to that. You know, my own personal view is- You that mean we, in terms of scores? In terms of scores, yeah. Not in terms of political persuasion. No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, and my view is, look, we've got a hundred point scale and when you run across a great vintage, some wines are probably going to be in that very high stratosphere, which I would say is sort of 97, 98 and up. 
And, you know, I think that there's this perception maybe out there that critics like to give these high scores, but I can tell you that, you know, every time I see one of the wines that I've given a really high score to, I get really nervous. How so? I mean, what does that feel like? Because I know that people have bought a wine based on some very high score, very positive review that I've given a wine, and I would be devastated if people were disappointed. I would feel like I had really let them down. Um, I mean, it's easy to give 92 or 93 or 88, maybe for a, a Chianti or a, you know, Pelaverga we were talking about before, wines where it doesn't really matter whether, you know, it's not going to make or break anybody's year. But, you know, when you get into the 97 and up range, 98, 99, 100, people make decisions on those wines. Those are never inexpensive wines. People's expectations are high. It's like going to a three-star Michelin restaurant. I mean, you can almost only be disappointed. It's If you have a great meal, all you say is, yeah, so what? That's what I paid for. I mean, per se has to be great. I mean, that's the whole EMP has to be great. That's what we're paying for. <laughs> the risk and reward is so skewed towards actually being disappointed. So if I give a, you know, one of the first wines that got 100-point score for me was like 04 Monfortino, let's say. Every time I see that wine, I get a little nervous because it's like, holy S-H-I-T, I hope this wine is great. I've had it enough times now that I'm not really too concerned anymore. But I can tell you the first couple of times I'd see that wine pop up, I'm like, oh my God, I hope that this show's great. So it's not at all simple or easy to be enthusiastic about a wine because at the end of the day, I mean, my reputation and everybody else's reputation who does this job is really linked towards that credibility that comes with being, you know, more right or, you know, it's not black and white, but being more right more often than not. And so giving out high scores, I think, takes a lot of conviction because, you don't, you know, chances are, look, we're all human. You're going to fall flat on your face at some point and um, probably at many points in life. That's just the way it is, right? So, so yeah, anytime I see a wine that I've given a high score to, I always, <laughs> it's like, it's, like stage fright, you know, you just sort of like little butterflies, like, God, I hope it's great. And thankfully more often than not it is, but it's it's not so easy to take that position to say, this is an extraordinary wine or or a vintage to say, this is um, a really great vintage, 2010 Barolo, you know, now everybody's crazy about these wines, but I've been telling our readers for a couple of years that this was a great vintage. And, you know, anybody can start to be a critic. I mean, that's what I did 10 years ago. I just started going to these places, tasting, writing, and, and you can, it's not hard to start, but it's pretty hard to take a, a position of conviction. And you think about all of the people who, who, for example, all the critics or people who have access to these wines who maybe live in Europe or Switzerland or France, who can go to Piedmont and get in their car, they could go there, they could be in these cellars tasting every weekend. Whereas guys like like me and or, or Steve or anybody based here, I mean, you've got to make a trip, you've got to pay for your airfare, hotel, rental car, you've got to get your appointments you know, scheduled you know, two months in advance, it's a big commitment. And so you've to come out and say, well, you know, I think that this is a great vintage. Well, a lot of people could have done that, but actually very few people did. So the idea of giving high scores to wines when I think that they're merited, uh, that's that's um, not as easy as people think, because if you're wrong, you're going to pay the price. Have there been times where you were really excited about a wine, maybe in barrel, and then later you went back and tried it and it wasn't what you expected and you had to revise what your thoughts were originally? Yeah, that happens occasionally. I mean, you never really know why that could be. I think that making wine is really hard. You get one vintage a year, obviously. You can't really erase mistakes. You're not really drawing in pencil. And I think great winemakers have, I was always taught that great winemakers had 
a great palette to know when to do what. And that's not so easy. And I think it's probably much, it's, you know, like, like a chef will tell you, like the, like you buy a piece of fish, like the minute that fish is butchered, you've determined 95% of your end result. You can, you can't improve that. You can only, if you buy a pristine piece of salmon, you can't make it taste better than it already is. You can only enhance what's already there, but you can't turn, you know, three-day-old fish into a Le Bernardin dish. It's just not going to happen. So with wine, I think of it very similarly. It's very easy to take something away and it's very hard to keep something great if that's what you picked. So a lot of times what happens, maybe wines aren't racked properly, you know, being they're not moved they, when they need oxygen or they're maybe bottled too late and they oxidize a little bit. So I have had that happen where you taste wines that are not as impressive in the barrel as they were in the bottle. But that's why I think it's really important to do both sets of tastings. So that takes an enormous amount of work, especially the region where it takes the most amount of work is Burgundy because the production of these wines is very small. It's not easy to taste bottled wines in Burgundy. Producers will open them up you know, very rarely. So it takes a lot of work, a lot of scheduling, a lot of organization, a lot of logistics. But that's why I always believe very much, as much as possible, to taste bottled wines again in barrel. And the only place where that, where I mean, Steve is really taking over Burgundy for Venice on a for for the most part. But the only place where that is just logistically virtually impossible on a comprehensive basis is in Burgundy. Anywhere else, you can if you can taste wines that you've had in, in barrel and bottle. So that gives you the chance to do the the comparison. But yeah, that happens occasionally. You spoke about it being difficult to give a wine a high score. Is it sometimes difficult to give a wine a low score? Yeah, absolutely. It's the same deal. You know, um, at the end of the day, most wines, especially, is, you know, with the exception of big mass produced wines, which don't are not necessarily going to be in the sweet spot for readers of a publication like Venice or the other publications in the same kind of realm. You know, they're, often made by people and families. They're not made by corporations. And you know what it's like to go to Burgundy or Piedmont or many other parts of the world where you you might be tasting in what is basically somebody's home or their kitchen or their garage. And sure, I mean, sometimes even your favorite producer is going to have an off vintage. It happened to, you know, for example, Bruno Jacosa, 2008s, 2009s are are very disappointing vintages next in, relative to what's happened there since 1961. That's like five decades, right? 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. So, so yeah, that, you know, there's a perfect example. I mean, that's one of the producers that I own the most of. Um, I mean, I still have 1960s Barolos and Barbarescos in my cellar of Jacosa. So, I mean, I know these wines really well. I've tasted them forever. But they had a really, they're, I think, coming out of it slowly, but they had a really rough patch there in 08 and 09. The wines were really disappointing, and you know, I wrote what I thought. Same thing with uh, Mauro Mascarello's 2009s. I thought Kellen Lignier had a problem with 09s from the barrel to the bottle. I thought that the wines had been bottled perhaps a bit too late. The fruit was dried out. They were very different from when they were in barrel. And I had given these wines really good scores in the barrel really good scores. And in the bottle, the wines were a really, I mean, unfortunately, I thought they were kind of a disaster. You know, there's sometimes when you taste wine where you just, you you pray, you hope, you would love to be wrong. <laughs> you would love that this is not the reality, but you can only write what you think on that one day. And I thought these wines were a little, they were oxidized and they were, uh, you know, the fruit had dried out. And, you know, I'm you're dealing with a, a person who's had a very hard life. She lost her husband young. She's a single mother raising two kids in France. Massive 
fighting with the relatives over vineyards. I mean, this is very difficult. Making wine is hard, even without all that. And yet, this was in wine advocate days, but the principle was the same. It was basically the reader needs to know that these wines in the bottle are not what they were in the barrel. And it was heartbreaking to publish those reviews, but I had to, I just, that was a, and that's an example where I used, I just listened, I, I used as a, as a barometer, as a compass, I really thought what is in the best interest of the reader? The best interest, what's in the best interest of the reader is that I publish what I really think about these wines. And that's a very hard decision because we're all human uh, and it was not an easy thing to do. And uh, I don't know if it's the right decision or not, but but I did do what I thought was in the best interest of our customer. I mean, I want to be able to sleep at night. So the only way that that's going to happen is if I write what I think. That's what people are paying for. I won't always be right, but it will definitely be what I think. But that, that happens because uh, just because you made a great wine last year doesn't mean you can make a great wine next year. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is that because winemaking is so tied to nature that you can see incredibly fast changes Actually, even though you only get to make one vintage a year, that is true. By the same token, it's amazing, actually, but it's actually true that you can see very significant changes in a very short period of time. You know, we're going to publish Napa, you know, we've, we're publishing Napa Valley reviews this week. And you look at Hourglass and Blue Line, which were made by Bob Foley. Now they're made by Tony Biaggi, who of course made wines at Plump Jack for many years. The wines could not be more different. And you can have a conversation about you like them, you don't like them. That's all totally cool. But in a in just a span of a year, everything has completely changed. Maria Teresa Mascarello, her dad's wines were funky, inconsistent. You know, she gets rid of the old barrels, brings in new barrels, is doing better sorting. She's got people working there who can help her and things, you know, because ultimately nobody does anything by themselves in this world. You have to have people who who can help you in things that you are that aren't necessarily your strengths. And in a few years, her wines are better have are now among the very best in Piedmont, but they are for sure, for sure better than the wines her father was making. No question about it. A few small little tweaks and changes. So now you've got two very different worlds, Napa Valley high-end, Cabernet versus Artisan, Piedmont. I mean, even though Blue Line and Hourglass is still small by Napa Valley standards for sure, but you're talking about rich, sumptuous Napa Valley wines versus Artisan transparent Barolos. And those are two cases where a change had profound influence in a very short period of time. So you can have those are two cases where the changes have been positive, but you can also have changes where the can have cases where the changes are negative in a very short period of time. I mean, I, you know, I, I have never made wine, but which is I, one of my great regrets. But you know, one racking, one filtration that's too heavy, one whatever, you know, treatments that are too close to the harvest. I mean, there's just so many chances to get it wrong it's a, a kind of actually miracle that the world has so many great wines when you think about all the things that you could do wrong um, so i don't think it's easy at all but i do think and i've seen it that you can see major changes in the positive with in a very short period of time so it goes both ways have there been repercussions to giving low scores have there been times where they didn't let you taste there anymore yeah that's happened i mean you know it's just it just comes with the territory you know, this job is a privilege and um, I view it as such. And it's kind of unfortunate and sometimes that people care so much, but it's just going to happen. You know, you'll get nasty emails. 
Uh, I've gotten my share of those for sure. There are people who don't want to let you taste their wines, which is, I think, a bit short-sighted, but it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, there's definitely places where I can't go back and taste. You know, we were talking before about Bruno Giacosa. That's another one. I mean, they were just livid after I wrote what I wrote about their Reserva, their 08 Red Label, and I can't go back there and taste. That's okay. I'll just go buy the wines. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, uh, I, we do what's in our, our, re, our subscribers best interest always. So if that's going to happen, it's going to happen. I mean, I, you know, I didn't pull any punches there. I wrote what I thought. Um, the reviews weren't terrible. They just weren't at the level of what they're used to. So be it. Um, it's part of life. It's happened to me in California too, where I can't go taste certain wines. What is a day in the life of a wine critic? I mean, what's that really like? And what have you learned over the years of what works, what doesn't work for you? Depends a lot on the region and the vintage. So, which is to say that I try to take my time and not be too rushed. You learn how much time you need in each. So a lot of what this comes down to this job is about organization. It's the idea of that piece of salmon. Well, like your trip, the success of your trip is actually determined before you leave. It's determined by how well you've set up your schedule. And I have, you know, great team of people who help with that. Including your wife. Including my wife who does that and, and much more. She really basically runs the business. But a lot of it has to do with organization. How much time do I need at each place? Do they know exactly which wines I want to taste so people aren't fumbling around? And are they prepared? And and sometimes you can save a lot of time by having a, a power outlet for your computer or a table if you want to sit down. So there's just sort of things that you learn over time, and these are not my divine ideas, they are things that I've been taught by other people. So somebody said to me, well, look, you should ask to have a table and an outlet for your computer. And um, Becky Wasserman told me this in Burgundy. She said, look, this is what you should do. You, because obviously, I mean, some people prefer notebooks and are a little bit more old fashioned, but she knows how I like to work. She said, look, what you need to do is you need to tell everybody to have a table, an outlet, and a chair ready for you when you show up. And she said, even if only half of the people do it, you're going to come out so far ahead. We did that. And guess what happened? Almost every single person did that. Oh, and have the barrel samples blended and prepared in advance. Almost everybody did that. Not everybody, but almost everybody did that. So much so that, you know, it was funny because it was a couple of years ago. I was, we, I was in Burgundy and I, one night I went out to dinner with Jancis Robinson. And she said, I was just at Dugat P this morning and they had this table and this outlet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's because I told him, I asked him to please do that because of Becky Wasserman. And, and it was sort of funny that, that um, so, so she got the benefit of that as well. Makes a big difference. But I also think sometimes tasting in cellars can be confusing, not confusing is the wrong word, but it, it's, there's too many smells and other things going on there. So another great example of something that happened was one of the first times I went to Bruno Claire, you know, in Marcinet, I asked if the wines could be prepared in advance because they make like 18 different reds. It's a lot of wines. And they weren't very happy at first because nobody had ever asked them to do this, I guess. So we go into their room. It's me and Bruno and Philippe Brun, his longtime winemaker. And we're tasting the wines and he's kind of gruff at first. He says, you know, nobody's ever asked us to do this before. Kind of like, who the hell are you? You're like the you're like the new kid on the block. This is when I worked for Parker. It's like, so you've got, you know, these people who've been going there for many, many, many years before you, you know, Clive Coates and Alan and Steve Tanzer and John Gilman and all these people who've been there probably many more times than me. And that was, I could tell. He's like, who the, who the hell are you? You know, I mean, we've done this, but we're not really happy. So we're tasting the wines. 
And about a third of the way into the tasting, he's like, you know, it's really interesting to taste wines outside of the cellar. I'm like, okay. I'm like, maybe I'll be allowed to come back. <laughs> <laughs> and then about two thirds in, two thirds in, he says to, to Philippe, he says, you know what? We should taste wines like this more often. So, you know, it's, it's interesting, but that's another example of, you know, I, I guess the question was about, about what makes a successful trip or what do you learn? But a lot of it is, is really about how to manage your time and how to taste most efficiently. And there's no question that when, if you can taste the wine outside of a cellar, which is tough to do in Burgundy, really sometimes almost impossible. But when you can do it, a lot of times you find things in wines that are not always so apparent. So what's the life of a critic is about managing your time. If I know that I'm tasting a very tannic vintage, like 2003 was in Barolo and Piedmont because the heat had stopped the phenolic ripeness in a lot of these wines. And so I was imagining that I was going to taste really massively tannic wines. I will take a little, I'll, I will make a little bit of a lighter schedule. And then there are places where you could taste all day because the wines, like, you know, Burgundy is a great example. The wines are not that alcoholic. Obviously, they're all about lightness and grace. You never get poured a lot of wine either. I think Burgundy is just the best place. I noticed once I started going there, I just become much more sensitive. I think that Burgundy is the, the best place in the world to train a palate because you're going to go to Bruno Claire and you're going to taste 18 Pinot Noirs and they're all Pinot Noir and they're all pretty much made the same way. And the only thing that changes only, right? Like everything, but what changes is really where the wine is from. And that is a great, great, great exercise for developing your understanding of nuance and finesse, shades of gray. It's all shades of gray. There's no blacks and whites here. It's all shades. It's all tonalities. It's like looking looking at a Mark Rothko painting and just seeing where the color very slightly changes. And from top to bottom, it's totally different. It's all about the transitions. What's the difference? Marcinet, Gevray, you know, really understanding that the nuances of the village and the premier cruise. So in Burgundy though, I, you know, I find it very easy to taste because you're not getting a lot of wine they are also on this schedule because all, you know, generally most, especially in the, in, for the red wines are mostly tasted in November. These producers have a whole slew of people coming, who've come before or coming after. So the producers themselves are on a fairly tight, you can tell, kind of schedule. So you're in a groove of having to taste a, a fairly high number of wines fairly quickly with very few variables. Because if you're tasting reds from Cote de Nuit, it's, you know, all Pinot. So you're going to go from cellar to cellar. So I find that very easy to taste in Burgundy, actually, because the wines don't really tire you. Napa Valley is tough. Wines are big, powerful. I try to limit centralized tastings and do mostly visits, which obviously spaces out the wines because there's a lot of conversation and context. So it's a question of kind of understanding what you're going to taste and how you're organized. I also like to start early and go late, but I like to take a nice break in the middle of the day. So uh, that's not so easy to do in the States because culturally it's tough, but in places like you know Piedmont or Burgundy, it's easier. But I find that that to me is the ideal day. Start eight or 8.30, work till 12.30 or so, have a, seri a real lunch, you know, not a sandwich, not a hard-boiled egg in the car, which is my usual routine in Burgundy. <laughs> I hate to say it's not glamorous. And then taste till, you know, six or seven at night, maybe a little bit later sometimes. So you've, you've kind of, if you do it that way, you can kind of get two days out of one because you take a nice chunk off in the middle. And I, unless there's some spectacular life-changing wine to taste, basically I have lunch by myself and I don't drink uh, at lunch or dinner. There's always a couple of exceptions to that. 
but it's for the most part that's what i try to do so and if if i drink at night it's really just a taste it's never anything major because i want to be really fresh the next day so those are the things you learn how does your palate change over the course of the day well i like tasting the best at the end of the day it's really funny at another another sonoma winery i was scheduling my first appointment there and i wanted to go at five or six o'clock at night which is kind of like my favorite time to taste because one, you're really in a groove. Uh, I find that I'm at my most sensitive and perceptive at the end of the day, because I think tasting is a lot like sports. You know, you, you don't, I mean, what you really like is that last mile of your run. It's not, it, you get tired in the middle. You don't get tired at the end. So at the end of the day, I usually feel very alert, very focused. And I've got the memory of all the wines I've tasted up until the, that point. So I like tasting around, let's say six or so, five or six and later not obviously till like midnight or anything like that but i that's sort of the last appointment of the day is a very calm period also because you don't have to you're not thinking about where you have to go next so there's i think a, an aperture of the mind that's totally different so to me this is a great a great time to taste so anyway i emailed this my maker and i said i'd like to come at five o'clock and he said do you have no respect for our winery you want us, we, we, we will not be your last stop of the day. Oh, wow. Okay. That's because there's plenty of places that ask me to be the last stop. Usually in a lot of places in, especially in Italy, they, they kind of prefer that because then the winemaker themselves is not thinking about who's coming next. Uh, you know, dinner is very late. So they're not thinking about dinner. It's just kind of this very nice, peaceful time between call it five and eight, where there's no more appointments, but no meal or any other commitments of any kind. So a lot of times I, I save big tastings or very important wines that are structured and tannic that I want to spend some time with. I, a lot of times I'll do those tastings at the very end of the day. But here it was a completely different reaction. <laughs> so you sort of learn a little bit kind of, you know, what other people's perceptions are. But, I, you know, I, I like tasting towards the end of the day. I find it a great time, very relaxing time. So I think that maybe that's what happens. It, sometimes it's a little bit hard in the, in the morning. And so I like, I like to take my time in the morning as well, just to get sort of habituated. But you also get into kind of a, a routine of doing things. And, and so it usually takes a wine or two and then you're sort of off to the races. You spoke a little bit about the situation on the ground in Burgundy, but how is the situation on the ground in the Piemonte? That's the region you've been going for many years. What's it like today versus yesterday and the day before? Well, it's radically changed. I started going there in 1997. It's the first time. And this was the era of the Gambero Rosso, of the Trebichieri, of the super jammy, concentrated, oaky wines that were all the rage. Um, you couldn't give away a lot of the wines that are super popular now. And um, I, you know, I did this private event on these wines, I don't know, like in the fall, two or three months ago. And somebody asked me, what is it about this region that made you fall in love with it? And the main re reason is that you could go to these wineries, you would meet directly with the winemaker, and they would open whatever you wanted to taste and spend hours of time with you. And so what a tremendous education. So, so you're tasting with Luciano Sandrone, you're tasting with Bartolo Mascarella, you're tasting with Domenico Clerico, you're tasting with Elio Altare. My God, I mean, what a privilege. On top of that, you have... This wine, Barolo or Barbaresco is one year less, but you've got this wine that is aged for a couple of years in bottle and a year in the barrel, which means that you might be able to taste three or four different vintages of each wine. So you go to Scavino or 
Barovia or any of these producers who make multiple single vineyard wines. And once they know that you're a serious taster, you might taste three or four vintages of these wines. And now you do that once a year or twice a year. That is an amazing education that you can't get in any other part of the world. So when I go to Piedmont in November, for example, which I've been going there at that time of the year for forever, but to give you an example, in November, I might taste, so this is, let's say, for example, this would be November 2014, okay? I would have tasted the 2011s that were bottled in the summer, sold next year, 2015. 2010, which is the vintage that is currently being sold, I start with bottled wines, then I taste all the 12s, all the 13s, and possibly a 14, some 14s as well if the wines aren't weird. This was a very late harvest, so not the best year to do that, but it gives you an idea, four or five vintages. Every time you go of every wine of four or five vineyards, you cannot get that education in Burgundy. You cannot get that education in Napa Valley. You can't get that education anywhere except for possibly very specific wines that spend a lot of time in the cellar. It could be Vega Sicilia or Monfortino or whatever, but there's just not, this is not the way that wines are really made anymore. Montalcino would be another place if they didn't tinker with the wines so much. So now you're visiting a region where you're tasting a lot of wines and a lot of vintages on a rolling basis, and your palate just grows because you have this ability to access to wine because the wines are available. They're in the barrel. They're not bottled. Nobody's really losing anything by pouring you something that's you know in a tank or a barrel. Roberto Vuercio, go and taste six or seven Cruz of La Mora, four vintages. I mean, that's a hell of an education. I mean, if you can't understand the difference between Cerecchio, La Serra, Brunate, Rocca della Nunziata in that tasting, you know, you should be doing something else. It's just an unbelievable experience. So that's why I fell in love with Piedmont. I fell in love with, with Piedmont because you had access to the actual people who were making the wine and the ability to have an incredible educational tastings place after place after place after place. You go to Conterno, uh, Giacomo with Roberto Conterno. You can taste every barrel in the cellar if you want. That's an amazing experience. So that's why I fell in love with those those wines. It's interesting though because back then, you know, you you could buy as much Rinaldi as you wanted. You could buy as much Bartolo Mascarello as you wanted. The first vintages of Monfortino that I bought, they were available at retail for for years. The idea that a wine is sold, the the prices for for Italian wineries that come out in, on January, in January, not necessarily January 1st per se, but in January, a company will, a winery will put out its price list. And the idea that a wine is made and then sold within that calendar year, that's a very recent phenomenon in modern times. This is not the way that it used to be. It used to be that vintages would take two or three years to sell through, and therefore you might walk into winery XYZ and see several vintages of wines. And when I started to go back in the in the late 90s, the wines that were all the rage were the blends, Montpras and things like that. You talk to these people and they'll tell you, you know, we used to have Montpran allocation and Barolo we couldn't sell. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, to even say this, it's not even 20 years later, it just it seems almost unbelievable. I mean, you might sit across the table from me and say, this guy's crazy, but that's really the way that it was. It was totally different. So what's changed? Well, back then, obviously, there was an infatuation with much more international style of wine, of grapes. And then the Italian press, I think, did a really bad job in the sense that they only promoted one style of wine. This is one of the very first things I wanted to do with Piedmont Report. I've never taken the view that as a critic, people should care what I think per se. It's more a question of, I want to show you the lay of the land. And then I want people to figure out what they like. 
give people the tools to make their own decisions. What I like is only important to me. Why should you care? You shouldn't. But you might have an interest in saying, well, this is kind of a good representation of the landscape. Let me taste here and there and see what I like. So Piedmont Report was conceived to give people the entire breadth. Just like, you know, we'll have our Festival del Barolo coming up in a couple months. It's the same deal. I want people to taste everything from Burlotto to La Spinetta. Then you decide what you like. I could care less. It's not my job to tell you what to drink. I don't want to tell you what you should like or not like. But what we want to do is show the breadth. So Piedmont Report was born with the idea of showing people the breadth. When we started this 10 years ago, the only sort of traditional Barolo or Barbaresco that was very well reviewed in the States was really Bruno Jacosa. And that's because that's because he was represented by Weinbow and Weinbow had great access to Parker and the rest of the US media. And then you would get an occasional good review here or there, but these wines were really not at all followed. And you could buy, even 10 years ago, you could go to Rinaldi and buy multiple vintages. Mascarello's had wine lying around forever. Monprivato was an unknown wine in the States, aside from New York, Chicago, and California, which is not America. And it was just amazing. So what's changed is that the more traditional wines have become obviously much more popular. But more than that, there's really been kind of a convergence of style in a big big way because if you go look at Cascina Francia today, I can guarantee you that that vineyard is not being farmed the way Roberto Conterno's father farmed it. There's a lot of dropped fruit. The yields are really low. I mean, this is a modern vineyard. <laughs> it's a modern vineyard. You can say whatever you want. Um, the only thing that's traditional about this wine is, is that it's got... Okay, it spends a lot of time in barrel and has long fermentation and, you know, it's basically minimally handled. But this is not a traditional wine in the sense of the oxidated wines that my dad liked to drink 30 years ago. So the massive convergence of style, the traditionalists have backed off, you know, they cleaned up the cellar and made more effort to have hygiene and switched out old barrels, bought better destemming equipment. I think this is one of the big issues with Nebbiolo is that Nebbiolo has a very fragile jack that doesn't always separate from the skin. And if you don't have full phenolic ripeness, you end up with jacks in your tanks. So you can kind of assume that in an era where, let's take about, like about the 70s, 60s and 70s, where you had cooler vintages, lower levels of ripeness, probably not the best equipment. Even if you destemmed, you know, you're probably getting a, some percentage of stems or jacks or stuff in your tank. And that was in the wine. Today, people are more attentive. So wines are cleaner, they're more polished. And then of course the weather has changed dramatically. It's much drier, warmer most of the time. So uh, the weather has had, played a big role in how these wines have changed. But the wines of today are very different from the wines of 30 years ago. There's nothing you can do about that. But basically since I've been going there, there's a big stylistic shift, uh, a, a big stylistic conversion, which I think is generally good because this idea of modernist versus traditionalist was something that never I never really found particularly exciting. Um, what you see is a big jump in quality, which is great. What worries me is that Barolo might become the next Piedmont. Producers might become inaccessible. It's harder to go now. Producers travel might more. Might become the next Burgundy. Yeah. No, Barolo might become the next Burgundy. It is already, I think. I mean, but I don't mean just in terms of the wine. I mean, in terms of the lack of access. It was very easy when I started going there. But now, when I try to make my appointments, people are traveling more. You got to start a little bit earlier. People have more commitments. This year, I saw more British and French tourists in Piedmont than I have ever seen ever before in restaurants, in town, walking around, in shops. 
I think that that's obviously very good in some ways because you know there's economic prosperity, but it's also changing the landscape quite significantly. And now you have foreign groups looking for places to invest. A hectare of top quality Barolo vineyard is gonna cost about 1.2 million euros, more or less, give or take. In Burgundy, the price for Grand Cru vineyards might be 15 times that. So the parcels are of course very different, but 10 to 15 times is normal. So people are looking, there are serious foreign groups, American, Asian, European, ex-Italy, of course, looking to make investments in Italy, including the biggest luxury brand and mass market wine groups than you can think of. You you name five of them, you're gonna you're gonna get three right away that are looking right now to buy vineyards in Piedmont. And that will change forever the economics of vineyard land in Piedmont. The local winemaking family can still afford to buy even top tier vineyards in Piedmont. You might have to get a loan or securitize versus other assets that you have, but it's still possible. But in five years, it won't be possible. It'll become like Burgundy, where all the vineyards are slowly going to be owned by investors. And that totally changes the place. So as somebody who's been buying these wines and drinking these wines, I it just seems inevitable to me. I just hope it doesn't happen necessarily like right away, but it just seems sadly like it's just going to happen. It's, I'm, once that train starts, I don't think it can really go back. And you think the interest that we see now in the market for Barolo is based on the great 2010 vintage, a run of good vintages in general, good pricing in an era of price escalation in other regions. What's causing so much interest in Barolo today? I think it's kind of a perfect storm, kind of. I mean, this is what I told my readers you know, early this year because I, I knew this was going to happen. It, it was so clear to me that this was going to happen, Levy. This is the why, why you can't have your blinders on and only think about one or two regions where you have to understand what's happening in the world. What was very obvious to me was, I mean, look, this should be obvious to anybody. This is not rocket science. What do we know as a fact? We know as a fact that Bordeaux hasn't had an exciting vintage since 2010, which itself has not sold because the prices were too high, because after this 2009 sucked out so much money from the market that people just didn't have enough to really spend. So you still have 2010 unsold, which is a great vintage, maybe better than 09 for Bordeaux. Those wines are unsold. Then you have 11, 12, and 13, which are all at you know, some various level of average or slightly better, but certainly not going to, or slightly worse, but certainly not vintages that are going to inspire people to go out and buy wines, which for people who didn't know it before are not particularly exclusive. There's nothing exclusive about a first growth Bordeaux. Um, the wines are fantastic. They're reference points. I think they'll come back. They're like a great book or a great piece of art, great symphony. They're always There's always a place for those wines, but they are produced in big quantities. There's 20,000 cases of first growth of each first growth Bordeaux made each year, more or less. So when people decided, you know what, these wines are expensive, but they're not particularly exclusive, that was a big problem because there's only 500 bottles of Christophe Rumier's Moussigny. And if you want that, that's really exclusive. That's expensive and exclusive. So, so that's Bordeaux. So you've got unsold 2010 and then three vintages in the pipeline that are not particularly going to set the world on fire. And then there's no Burgundy. Burgundy hasn't had a regular harvest since 2009 of, of production. So there's no wine. I mean, when I went this summer to taste 2012, producers were so apologetic about not having any wine to show. Those vintages are down anywhere from 30% or so in 10 and 11, 30 to 40%. But some places in the Cote de Bonne, as you well know, 
2012, 2013, and maybe even 14. It's too soon to know exactly, but you're looking at minus 70, minus 80, minus 90. So there's no volume. And you know, if you're only getting a six pack of Grand Cru Burgundy to sell, you're not gonna be able to pay the lights if you're in the business of selling wine. So it was very clear to me that two of the other big traditional old world regions, one had no wine to sell and the other one had no exciting vintages to sell. So it just seems very obvious that the market is going to flock to Piedmont. And 2010 Barolo, which is a better vintage than 2010 Barbaresco, one of the things I've tried to always highlight, but it's hard. Uh, these are two different regions. I mean, yes, they're a few kilometers away, but the vintages do not track. It just seemed to be so obvious that there was going to be an explosion in these wines because what else are going to people sell if you're in the business of selling? What else is sexy right now? What else can you get people excited about? There's no doubt in my mind that if 2010 Barolo had come as good as the wines are, and I believe them that they are great, if they had come out at a time when there was a similarly high quality vintage in Bordeaux or Burgundy, or also let's not forget Napa Valley, because even though those buyers may not be the same buyers, Napa Valley 2011, which is an unfairly maligned vintage in my view, is still not a hyped vintage by any stretch of the imagination. So there's like no excitement in the world of wine right now. If the, if the 10 Barolos had come out at a time where there was 09 Bordeaux or 09 Burgundy, it would be a totally different ballgame. But you have one region with very high quality wines and a lot of dollars, euros, whatever you want, chasing a limited supply. And this is what has created, I think, this interest in this wine. Not that the wines don't merit it on their own, but it's accentuated by the lack of stuff for the trade to sell in this moment right now. So that's why I told my readers that they needed to get on it right away if they wanted to buy these wines, because it was really clear that this was that these were the industry dynamics. I mean, you can't change that. It's so obvious. So I think that's a main reason. And then now people are tasting the wines and they're phenomenal, of course. But I think a lot of it has to do with the macro environments, the macro environment surrounding wine. I've never seen so much interest in Barolo, but I also know that I've had big merchants in London tell me that they're out of that their Bordeaux business is down seventy or eighty percent. What are they going to do? They're going to sell something. Is the image of Barolo helping with that somehow? Is there something about what Barolo is that helps it through the channel besides the numbers part of it? Well, I think there's an image thing, but I'm not sure that necessarily. It's one of the most beautiful things about Barolo, but I'm not sure people necessarily understand it because it's not been so well documented but Barolo is a wine that has both has its origins in nobility so it's an aristocratic wine from the beginning so we're talking like late 1800s it's an aristocratic wine in its birth you have three noble families that are involved no heirs really and so then there's a period of kind of void and then the modern day version of of Barolo as we understand it sort of today is more closely linked to what you might think of Burgundy sort of, you know, vineyards that are owned by multiple families, artisan wines, small scale production, you know, very much handmade, handcrafted kind of wines. So Piedmont is this region that can bring together, that it, it can appeal to you for on a number of different levels. You can fall in love with the aristocratic origins, places like Fontana Fredda, or the castle of Barolo, or the Castello di Grinzane. And then you can fall in love with the producer who's got their vegetable garden outside their vineyards, like Elio Altare, which is like, that is as artisan, as contadino, as vigneron as it can get. So Piedmont has both. But I think what's really changed, Levy, is that the wines are much easier to drink young than before. It was always like, ah, you got to wait 20 or 30 years. Yeah, those were the wines my dad bought. They were undrinkable. They were hard as nails, you know? Today, you've got cleaner cellars, better destemming, higher levels of phenolic ripeness because there's less snow and, and the 
the seasons are generally drier and warmer. Generally, there's obviously been a few exceptions in there, 13 and 14, but for the most part, the and winemaking has improved. Weather forecasting is has improved. You know, 2005 is a vintage where they knew that there was a big weather storm coming in that was going to last many, many days, like seven, eight days. And there was a decision to make. Pick early and make sure that you've saved the crop or wait it out. That is a harvest saved by weather forecasting. The parents of today's winemakers had no radar or weather forecasting to even make such a decision. They would have just harvested when they always harvested. It would have been harvested under the rain. That is an example of a vintage that exists today because people have weather forecasting technology. Think about it. A generation ago, that would have been one of those rotted vintages that you forget about. So the quality of wines has gone up and now people taste the wines and like, holy smokes, these wines are tremendous. You can taste, you know, we did a, a 2008 Barolo dinner at Barbalude a couple months back and I was talking about this with Mike Madrigal the other night, how incredibly beautiful the wines were. Are they gonna be better in 10 years or 20 years? God, I hope so. Yes, I, I think that they will. But is it, a, is it a crime to open, you know, 12 or 14 08 Barolos and taste them? Absolutely not. The wines are delicious today. So I think that that's what's changing. What's changing is that more people are tasting the wines young and then, you know, you make a decision. I like them. I don't like them. That's fine. Whatever. But the wines are much more easy to understand young. People can make decisions. People are discovering how beautiful the wines are. They're nowhere near as monstrously tannic as they were a generation ago. And so people are starting to, to buy a little bit more. I mean, I had one reader say to me, you know, I've never bought Barolo, but this year I wanted to check out this vintage, so I bought a mixed case of 10 Barolo. Well, guess what? You know, there's 13 million bottles of Barolo made each year, of which maybe a half a million are going to be wines that really interest you. I mean, just think about, you know, sort of half a million, maybe a million tops, but I think it's closer to a half a million. It was the average domain, you know, the production at a at high-end domain of Barolo might be 25, 30, 40,000 bottles, even unless you get to Scavino or Vira level. I mean, the, the production is pretty small, actually. So even if you said it's a million of bottles that interest us out of out of 13 or so, you know, if thousands of consumers around the world say, I want to buy, I've never bought this wine, but now I want to buy a case. Well, you know, it doesn't take very much of that kind of behavior, which is actually fairly tame behavior. It's not saying I'm going to buy 10 cases of something. And then have and multiplying that. I mean, if, if thousands of people around the world say who've never participated in this market for this wine say, I'm gonna buy a case to check it out, that can have a profound impact on the supply and the availability for everybody else. So these are the things that I think are really driving it. Wines are just better, younger, more easy to understand. But has the palate of the American consumer changed at all? Because I feel like, say, the 2007 vintage, if that had come out in 1997 or 1990, which are vintages I think are somewhat similar, it seems like that vintage would have been a lot more popular with the consumer. In reality, it came out in 2007, and it seems like it sort of did okay, but not great with the American consumer. Well, I think people are going to rediscover 07. I think it's a great vintage. For sure, it's not a classic vintage. There's no question about it. It's a... Uh, a very precocious, warm year. The wines are really rich, voluptuous, uh, maybe uncharacteristically so. But you know, would I love to have some more 85 Monfortino or 85 Jocosa Red Labels or 85 Elio Altare or whatever? Yeah. Those are vintages that I think get their due much later. It's the paradox. You would think, right? Ripe flash. As long as the wines don't fall apart, of course, that's, we're going to knock on wood here. I don't think that's going to happen the mind always thinks, well, ripe, flashy vintage, these wines should drink well young, but they may not age. 
and they're kind of sweet and not sweet in a like an RS way, like you might find a Napa Valley Cabernet, but they're definitely richer. There's more glycerin than you're used to seeing in Nebbiolo and that can throw some people off. But when the wines are 15 or 20 years old, they're gonna be absolutely glorious. And I regret not buying more of that vintage. It's not a vintage for, um, I mean, it's a vintage that drinks young because the tannin is sweet. So like if you're in a restaurant or whatever, you would for sure drink a seven before a six. I mean, six is hard as nails. It is not a classic vintage. There's no question about it. Yeah, maybe it is like 90, um, but so what? Those are glorious wines too, you know? I always think more to buy the estate more than the vintage anyway, but I think 97 is not, I mean, 07 is not the vintage for the real hardcore Nebbiolo drinker. I think that the the classic vintages happen to all be even. 04, which I just did a huge retrospective tasting of, that's an ex- unbelievable vintage. I mean, that's just a... Yeah, talking about a vintage of giving high scores to. I mean, I, I I remember tasting those wines when they were just coming out. I was working at Deutsche Bank at the time, squeezing in my tasting during Thanksgiving week. I loved this vintage. I thought the wines were tremendous. I always published Piedmont and the Wine Advocate in February, sometimes April, because I wanted my article to be in the hard copy for those wines. And I thought this these the world needs to know that this vintage is great like now. And I remember I pulled my, I was around Marco Paruso's place. Uh, it was like six or seven o'clock at night. It was dark. I stopped. So that's like kind of on the border between Castiglione, Castiglione and, yeah. and uh, between Castiglione, Yeah, between Castiglione, Falletto and Monforte. You can see Aldo Conterno. But I remember exactly where I stopped. I called Parker on the phone. I said, I need you to save me 12 pages, whatever it was, in the print edition. We're going to put Barolo on the December issue. And that was the earliest year that the advocate published Piedmont scores because- I was just blown away by these wines. They were so pure and delicate, but powerful. And I tasted the wines at age 10 and they're all really pretty exceptional. So I was really happy with that tasting. That's a perfect example of being a little bit nervous about revisiting a vintage 10 years later. But so four, six, eight, 10, those are the vintages for people who like more powerful, more, even though four is very sexy and refined. I always like that vintage for its finesse. Six is very... Four is kind of like eight. Those are very late harvest vintages, very sweet, fem, you know, kind of more feminine, delicate. Six and 10 are powerhouse, massively tannic vintages. You don't want to touch those for a long time. Um, yeah, and then seven is not really a vintage for for maybe the more classic leaning palette. But I think, you know, in 20 years, people will be very happy with those wines. And two is a good example of uh, classically rainy. <laughs> two is a freak vintage that got destroyed by hail. I think it was on September 1st. I mean, when I went to Piedmont. I was living in Italy at the time. When I went there the first time after that, I just could not believe what I was seeing. We were just talking about just devastation of vineyards. And, um, you know, vines are, people sort of think it's sort of like, okay, January 1 is a new year. Vineyards have a historic memory. They store information like people. The year doesn't reset for us on January 1. It's just seamless. Vines are the same way. So the effect of hail 2002 was not just in 2002, but had you know had potential issues for the future. Now it looks like not, nothing too bad happened. Yet 03 was a freak vintage afterwards, but 02 yeah very rainy. But hail was really the big issue because that just eliminated the need for people, the ability for people to make wines. People made wines in 91. They made wines in 92. They made wines in 94. In 04 there was no fruit. In 02 there was no fruit. I remember going to Roberto Boerzio's place and seeing the tanks empty. I mean, like in October, I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, like empty with the, with the, like the doors open. And usually you expect to have the smell of Nebbiolo fermenting, which is a godly 
heavenly smell, as you know. And you expect sound and you expect to see bustle and people moving stuff. And, you know, and there's like dead silence, really pretty, pretty depressing. But, you know, no, too, there was a few people who made wine, Fertino, of course, and the Masolino brothers made all of their single vineyard wines. And I think it's an, you know, an average vintage uh, where people made wine, but you have, you know, one epic wine. But I think it's very interesting that the Soldera O2 is also extraordinary. And uh, Miani's O2s, I think, are beautiful. And I think that there are places where it just makes you think about what does it really take to make great wine. Risk, you got to take some risk, of course. But why is it that the O2 Soldera is so magnificent? Why is it that the O2 Monfortino is so great? I mean, yeah, sure. If you were in La Mora and you had no grapes, okay, fine. But that was, hail is very localized. I mean, that was a huge hailstorm. So don't get me wrong. I don't mean to minimize it. But I can't believe Cascina Francia is the only vineyard that can make a great wine in all of Piedmont. I mean, that just can't possibly be. There's got to be something more than that. And uh, that more is, I think, what separates you know, the inspired people from the excellent, from the good, from the not so good, from the worse, right? Let's talk about Tuscany for a minute. You mentioned Soldera. The last time you were here, you talked about Montalcino as being divided by the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, which I thought was a <laughs> particularly poetic and uh, quite apt uh, historical observation. What's the story with Montalcino today and what happened with 2009? I think that the Italian culture really likes kind of controversy and likes to air the dirty laundry. Thankfully, Montalcino has been kind of quiet for a while, and I think that's very good. People don't need to know the ins and outs of stuff. You know, you go to Burgundy, you never hear a producer speak badly about their neighbor. They might hate them. They might be killing each other to buy the same vineyard, but they're not going to let somebody from the outside see that. Montalcino, they've got 2010 coming out. Um, in January, the wines I've tasted from the barrel have been terrific, so hopefully that's what's going to come through. I think things are a little bit more calm down there. Uh, 09 is uh, really, I mean, you, we, before we talked about, you know, giving low scores to wines, well, I mean, 09 Montalcino is a perfect example. I mean, certainly my view was much more critical than I think anybody else's that I've seen. And why do you think that would be? Why? Yeah, why do you think you took a more critical tone than someone else? Well, again, I mean, it really is pretty simple. I mean, I, one, I want to sleep at night. Two, I know people are going to make decisions based on what I think. And I just don't want to let people down. I view what I do as a, it's a massive responsibility. And it was just so obvious that the wines were, they were off. I mean, you could just tell the colors are very forward. Wines that deviated significantly from historical norms at estates, you know? So like you, you, when you taste a vintage like that, I mean, you're kind of collecting lots of data points and triangulating and you're kind of thinking, okay, Maybe I've got 50 wines in front of me and you sort of kind of comparing them to each other, but then you're obviously visiting wineries and tasting the surrounding vintages. How does nine compare to eight, to 10, to 11, to 12? It was so obvious that this vintage was problematic, but it wasn't always problematic. See, I think that the, well, when I was also there in the summer, I forgot, you know, it's kind of <laughs> kind of important, but in the summer of 2009, I spent, I can't remember how much time we spent in Italy, but we spent at least a week in Tuscany. And you know, visiting vineyards and and seeing things, and so you you drive through these vineyards, and there was massive heat wave at the end of August. Sort of second half of August is when you expect after Ferragosto. That's when the weather's supposed to turn. That's supposed to be kind of the 
the the very very last days of summer it's when the nights start to get cool and you sort of start to get a sense that fall is kind of in somewhere off in the horizon the, the real the really intense dog days of summer are supposed to be passed by then but in, in nine it just continued to be very hot even at night very like uncomfortably hot and i was there i saw it i went saw vineyards and i think it's a question of probably what happens in nine is you have yields that are too high and therefore the it's a paradox but when you when you have a very hot year you actually have to you have to drop crop i think people sometimes think well if i drop too much crop i might get fruit that's excessively concentrated and i think that that's a risk i mean i'm not a viticulturist i mean people who know what they're doing understand what the balance is but if you have too much fruit and it's hot at that last phase of ripening you're not going to ripen anything and you're going to have these green wines so i i felt like the wines lacked color Sangiovese is like Nebbiolo. They are wines that are supposed to have, people confuse color with like opacity and depth. Um, you look at young Nebbiolo, it's purple. It's purple. You know what it's like. It's violet. And young Sangiovese can be dark red to violet, but it should be translucent. And that's very different. The tonality of color, the translucence is very different from the actual saturation of color. So young Sangiovese should have a lively color. It's just not supposed to be black or purple, but it's supposed to have color, vibrant color. So you could see that these wines were already sort of orangish and brownish and kind of fading. And I, I think that Montalcino really suffers by having these rules where the wines have to spend a minimum amount of time in oak and a minimum of time in bottle. I mean, you go to Napa Valley, there's no rule for when wines are supposed to be bottled. I mean, there may be some minimum requirement, but it's so minimal that everybody exceeds it anyway but from what i've been told there's no real there's no minimum requirement and i just think that today with the improvement in viticulture i mean these these you know used to be that wines needed a lot of time in oak because that's when they would sort of the edges would you know would get smoothed out and the wines would come together but if you're harvesting perfect fruit today i don't know that you really need that i mean look at la lubies i mean she bottles at like at less than a year which is obviously very early for burgundy but still this idea that wines have to spend you know two or three years in a barrel for you know or more and you know they're released five years after i just think it's the death death sentence oh nine brunello came out last year the wines were already old if they had come out two years before it might have been a different story and then i think the consortio giving four stars to this vintage is very problematic because you send a message an expectation that's very high first to your own members saying this is a good vintage when you should have said look this is an average vintage make a little bottle it sell it as fast as you can and get it into the hands of people so that it gets drunk because now what will happen is right everybody's going to want 10 so there's going to be like a total bloodbath of 08 and 09 and the way that you're going to get your 10 is if you support people's liquidations of eight and nine pardon the pun i think i don't know i'm not in the trade but that's just instinctively I think that seems highly possible yeah okay so so this is what i imagine is gonna happen so it'll be a lot of good deals but i mean that you know i think you would have had better price stability if you had had the mechanism to sell that wine earlier without having to discount and just lower your price but don't don't slash your price and get it through the system. This is one, this is wine that should have been mostly bottled as Rosso or some Brunello maybe. It should have been sold at a friendly price. It should have been put in restaurant wine list, sold, drunk, cleared out, turn the cash over and get ready to buy 2010. I, I'm hoping those wines are great. So I think when the consortium says it's a four-star vintage, it sends a message to its own members that instills a false sense of security. Ah, you see that vintage wasn't so bad. Consortio gave it four stars. What are you talking about? No, no, we're going to bottle all of it. That's what happens. So 
And to me, it was very obvious. Now, some people were a little bit more charitable about the vintage, I think, but to me, I just felt that it needed to be said. And, and I wrote an article that was I probably harsh in some people's opinion, but I got a lot of people who told me that it was spot on. And I don't think it was anything. What I wrote is what everybody knows to be the truth about Montalcino. Just very few people are willing to say. And it's really obvious on every level. It's just so obvious. Just go there, spend a week there. Guarantee you, you come to the exact same conclusions, but you got to go. So let's take it back to Venice Media a little bit. Yeah. When you decided to purchase IWC, that idea originated with you or that was Steven's idea? Who called who? No, that was that was my idea. It's something that we had been talking about for a long time. I think that businesses that have been owned by a single, you know, by an entrepreneur like Steve, you know, the, it's just my parents own their own businesses and and I I know what this mindset is like. It's a very emotional mindset as it should be. You've created something, it's your baby. And it just takes a while for everybody to kind of get comfortable. It's just a very natural thing. These are not things that get done over terms or money or anything like that. It's all about relationship and are we going to have fun and be able to work together? Those are sort of the... So, and it just takes a while to sort of, for both parties to kind of converge and figure out that you're sort of in the same place. So, no, but that was something that, that I had started talking to Steve about a couple of years ago. Asking you as Antonio, would you have rather gone this route or would you have rather gone the route where you got a chance to purchase the wine advocate from Parker without starting Venice? Oh, I mean, there's just no question. There's no, absolutely no question because, I mean, it's true. I did try to buy the wine advocate a couple of times and you know, that was when I, the the big shift for me at the Wine Advocate was when I went from writing there part time, you know, while I was do, working in finance to when I joined full time, which start, happened like around the end of 2010 and the beginning of 11. And, you know, the whole, which was when Bob basically told the world I was his heir apparent and blah, blah, blah. The whole understanding with Bob and his partners at the time was that I would buy this business. I would buy the Wine Advocate either alone or with other people. But that was, you know, a promise that was made many times. Um and for whatever you know, whatever reason, Bob decided to go a different direction. But I just think of the time I spent there was extremely valuable to, for me. It was a great experience, great stepping stone. I always knew that it was possible that Bob would sell the business to somebody else anyway, because I had a very, you know, I'd worked really closely with him over all that time, and I knew how he thought. I knew how he had approached other decisions. I, had, you know, I was on the management committee there. I was I had a lot of insight onto into how people thought. And so I always knew that we needed to have plan B or plan C, whatever. So I was really prepared for whichever, whatever happened. It was kind of out of my control. I mean, I, you know, I knew what Bob wanted financially. We had all, all the money, but at some point, as I said before, it really never comes down to money. There's other stuff. Um, but Bob made a different decision and, and that opened up the door for us to do other stuff. So, And you're uh, happy with that? Absolutely. That stuff. I mean, we went, we, I left the wine advocate. It was like, um, would have been it would have been February of 2013. Three months later, Venice was up and running. And in the middle of that, I changed our techno one of our technology people. So I wasn't really happy with the first person we had building the site. So we basically started over. So we went from February to May. We launched Venice with one major personnel change, one of our outsourced contractors on technology that I, that I, that we changed. So we did all that in three months. Plus, had that little bump, that little speed bump. 
So, and, and why is that possible? Well, it's possible because our core team, you've met Marcia, James, Alex, we'd been working together for, for a number of years. We knew we were gonna do something. I wasn't sure which direction it was gonna go, but I always had plan B and we needed to have various options. And so when he sold it to the current owners, that was fine. I was like, okay, well, now we know what we're doing next. So that being said, you're a man who thinks 20 years out, as you said, yeah. what's your end game for Venice? I mean, what's that gonna look like when you're older? So what happened after the advocate is, you know, I mean, uh, the, the opportunities for me personally, but for us have just exploded all over the place. I mean, I could have never imagined if you had said to me three years ago, this was going to happen to you, I would have said you're insane. But, you know, one door closes and a thousand have opened and it's just been tremendous. It's been an incredible personal and professional, like life-changing experience in the most positive of ways. I would like for everybody who's listening to this to know what that feels like. It's just such an incredible thrill. So as we look to the future 20 years from now, you know, I mean, we're, it's true. Uh, I've got two young kids. I, I like to think more kind of like in 20 to 30 year kind of time frame of making long-term decisions. But I think right now without getting too grandiose or anything, I mean, you know, we're focused on, we've got a lot of you know, you've, you've got to walk before you can run. We're still in the walking phase. The walking phase is a lot of things that are not very sexy. Making sure that Scavino is not listed seven times on our website, but only once. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, there's a fair amount of that cleaning up stuff, making sure that, you know, Lescaz comes out properly. It's not glamorous. It's not sexy, but there's a lot of that that has to be done. So we're really working on that. You know, I want to get our new team up to speed. And then, you know, we'll see where we go from there. I mean, we're very, very fortunate to be in a strong position. I, you know, it's possible we would make another acquisition. I don't really know. We'll, we'll see what's out there, but I'm super excited. I mean, it's just, we're just having a lot of fun. I mean, it's a lot of work, especially during the holidays, not a lot of downtime, but it's been tremendously fun. And you know, that, what else can you ask for? You recently announced a young writer fellowship and it sounds somewhat like a mentorship program. Have you had strong mentors in your own life? And what is that fellowship going to look like in the future? Well, that was always really, has always been really important to me because yeah, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of great mentors. Um, mostly, I would say almost all of them in the world of finance where I worked, you know, for many years where I think there's more of a culture of that. And what I mean by mentor is I mean somebody who really goes out of their way to make sure that you're sort of on the right path. And in the world of finance, I had a lot of people like that who really, for whatever reason, I have no idea why, but people who went out of their way to make sure that I was doing the right things, making the right decisions, thinking about the right things. And I, I will forever be grateful to those people because they didn't need to do that. And they were massively successful people and they helped me tremendously because I think this is what happens. There's a, a, a real pleasure in knowing that you've shaped a young person, their life, their career, their could be their personal life, could be whatever. But I've had about three or four of those mentors. And so, so that's part of it. The other part of it is that, you know, it's very hard to make a living writing about wine. And I think that I'd like to change that. I don't know exactly how in every way, but in our own small way, we will contribute to doing that by giving people opportunities. And then I also wanna discover the next great talents, whatever, whoever they are, and then nurture them and have them work with us in the future if they want to. I, I think that, I mean, you know, 
if you think about a great sports team, it's it's not just the starters. It's almost always comes down to the strength of your backups, your bench. How deep is that bench? That's what really separates championship caliber teams. That's what really, you know, we're going to hit the NFL playoffs now. It's going to come down to how good the second and the third string guy is or the person who just came off the practice squad. That's what's going to really separate the great teams from just the really good. And Venice has to be great. That's one of the things that I, I just... I hate mediocrity and I won't, we're going to do everything we can to really put out something that is the highest quality possible. And the only way that that's going to happen is we have to have a really deep bench, just like a sports franchise of young talent that can be the future of this company in 15 or 20 years or 10 years or whenever it is. Because I'm not going to want to travel this much forever. I'm not going to want, I'm sure, and I'm sure other people are going to feel the same way. So we're going to discover those people today and help them, shape them. Take. I've taken somebody with me to Burgundy, to Piedmont, shown them around a little bit, given them an incredible experience. Certainly, I never really had that. I mean, I traveled with Parker a little bit, but it was all the way at the end when it wasn't really that. I mean, yeah, so I tasted with Bob at Harlan Estate and Behringer and a couple of other places, maybe and at the you know Napa Valley Vintners or whatever. And that was a great experience, but I was beyond the stage of being young, impressionable, and sort of shapeable. It was sad to say <laughs> i was already old but for somebody in you know so the scholarship is the fellowship is for people under 30 so for somebody of that age to have those experiences you can imagine how transformational it might potentially be so it's about giving back it's about discovering the next group of people it's about being surrounded by young people also because i find that really invigorating publishing their work if we like it and hopefully we can launch you know some careers and if we've done a good job and if we've created the right environment that I hope we will, I hope that people will want to be part of our team. You know, I can't control that in the future, of course, but it's it'll be perfectly fine if people go off and do something else. I sort of think of it, you know, kind of the way chefs train people. You know, some of them might stay on, some of them might go on and open their own places, but they've always there's always a connection. And I think that sometimes with wine writers and wine critics, I I would like to see more of the camaraderie and friendship that you see with chefs all the time. I mean, you know, these guys might hate each other and they might be massively competitive, but the public would never see that. The public is going to see Thomas Keller and Daniel Balud walking down the street in Aspen arm in arm having a grand I'm pretty grand sure those, in real life they like each other. Yeah, well, I'm just, it's, a, it's an example. But it's just to say There that are examples where that's not true, but that, those I'd like guys. to see a little more camaraderie. I'd like to see a little bit more, a feeling more of, I don't know, community. I mean, I don't really think of you're not hanging out with Jancis and uh, oh, Alan Meadows all the time. Like, no, I've been hey, to let's, let's go throw the football around. Oh, I've been to Jancis' home for dinner. We've, I That's see probably a good meal, huh? Yeah, well, Nick's great chef. And um, Jancis serves incredible wines, too. And she's a lovely person. But I, I don't think of her as a competitor. You know, I don't think and of is Bob that as, generational? I mean, why wouldn't you? Is that generational? I don't. I just don't think of the world like that, or, or or Bob, or even Steve when he wasn't part of our team. I mean, I just don't think of other people as competitors. First of all, we're not in a zero sum kind of business. So, as an example, you know, if you buy an Apple phone, you have by definition not bought a Samsung or whatever. So, the fact that you're buying one thing means you're not buying something else. But the fact that you may subscribe to Venice has no bearing on whether you subscribe to the Advocate or to or to Jancis or to the Spectator. I mean, I would hope that people, the, the the total sum of these publications is a, is nothing next to what people spend on wine. I would hope that people subscribe to all the publications. So I don't. For us to grow, 
we don't need to take somebody else's customer. We just have to put out a great product. If we put out a great product, then hopefully there's enough people who will buy it. It's very simple. So I don't think of other critics or other publications as competing with us, really. And therefore, my relationship on a personal level with people is not about competition. You know, even when Josh didn't work uh, with us, I was still hanging out with him. So fun guy to hang out with. Great guy to hang out with. And and so I don't. That's just not the way I'm wired. You see yourself about, as a bridge builder. Well, I mean, Venice is created to be a positive force of energy, not a divisive force. I think that things that are divisive are just full of negative vibe. Venice is meant to be, that's what the O is in our logo. It's a connector. Venice is a a force of positive energy. We're idealists. We're, We're dreamers. We're artists. We're creators. We're not destroyers. We're not trying to divide people. I find that who's got time for that? It's such a waste of time. I I would much rather be engaged in things that are uplifting and that create something positive for the future, like the fellows program and whatever else, you know, we might think of next. But for us, it's, I just think, I just think positive energy is a much better way to live than to always be looking over your shoulder or looking to see what somebody else wrote about something that you might have a different view of. I mean, who has time for that? What's your relationship with Robert Parker today? I've always had a good relationship with Bob. I mean, I was very transparent with him. I told him exactly what I wanted to do. And I told him that exactly, you know, I told him exactly what I was going to do at numerous critical moments. So, I mean, I don't think he was in any way surprised that I left. And I think it's better for everybody because, you know, Bob really needs to be the number one guy at his publication. And he probably should be the number, I mean, he should be the number one guy. I mean, you'll, it's, you will have noticed that when I was there, Bob had sort of anointed me the, he had not sort of, he did anoint me as the heir apparent, but he hasn't anointed anybody else the heir apparent after I left. And what that tells you is that he's got to be the king there. And some people have that personality. That's his personality. And so great. So it's worked out perfectly. I mean, I don't have any, you know. My relationship with him has always been really great. He was, at a certain point in my life, he was, you know, very encouraging. And that was um, that was important. I mean, I never got to taste with him as much as I would have liked to, but I did at the end. But as I said, sort of at the end, would have been much more valuable earlier. But it was, you know, for, for a number of years, it was really a wonderful opportunity. As I said before, at the beginning of this interview, for all of the years that I worked for Bob, he never asked me to change a single score or asked me anything about any rating. But it was not just that. It was much more than that. Bob didn't ask me to do anything in in the sense that he never asked me about an expense report, never questioned why I did this or that. I mean, basically for those six years, seven years, I ran my own business within the Wine Advocate with full autonomy to go wherever I want to do whatever I want, write whichever articles I want. Obviously, I knew what our readers were expecting, and that was the most important thing. But I had total autonomy to pretty much do whatever I want. So that was a perfect working relationship for somebody like me who had already had their own publication, who was responsible enough to not get carried away, who knew what, how to do it. And so it was a great opportunity for that time. You know, when that changed, obviously a lot of thing, other things changed too, but for that time, it was really, it was really a, a great deal of fun. And he's really a great guy to hang out with. You know, most people don't really, I don't think most people really know the real Robert Parker, you know, very different from the public persona. And, you know, when he wants to be, he can be very, very, you know, 
He's not busy combating people. He can be very down to earth, you know, very funny, has a you know, wicked sense of humor and he's a great guy to hang out with, you know? And he taught me a lot about, uh, about a lot of things. So I'm always grateful for that time. There's no question. But these last two years have been, I wouldn't give them up for anything, anything. So it's been tremendous. Now we can build something. We don't have any legacy. We don't have any baggage to deal with. We don't, you know, I, if, if I had bought the Wine Advocate, I would have spent the rest of my life building somebody else's legacy. Now we have, because there was a time, look, I, you know, I mean, I love Bob Parker. Right? There was a time in my life where I would have done anything for him. I mean, anything. People thought I was nuts. You know, in fall of 2012, I organized with Marzia, we organized a benefit for the Navy SEALs to celebrate Bob's 25th anniversary of the 82 Bordeaux Vintage. And the Navy SEALs were people that, that I knew, my friends and my, my relationships. I shared those with Bob. We organized that tasting in the fall of 2012 at the same time that I knew Bob was selling the business to somebody else. And the reason I did that is because once I said, we're doing it, we're doing it. It doesn't matter. This other stuff, as upsetting as it might've been at the time, it was just not going to get in the way. We said, we're going to do this event we're going to do it. But I had plenty of friends who said, you are completely out of your mind to be spending all of this time and to be putting in all of your relationships and all of your knowledge with these people. And when we had a, re a retired admiral come and speak at that event, it was just a former deputy director of the CIA. These are all people that, that we brought, me and Marcia brought to that event, our relationships that we shared. But we did that event while Bob was selling the business to somebody else and people thought that we were insane to do it. But I, you know, I think once you say you're going to do something, you do it. You don't, you never, that is the most important thing, I think. Again, getting back to this idea of human values. If I say to you that we're organizing this event, unless there is some like active nature that is, you know, like Hurricane Sandy was one of them for something else, it's going to happen. So, but these are all learning experiences. It's just been a tremendous journey, you know? So I can't possibly complain because where we've, the last two years for us have been just fantastic. So, and I always think that things happen for a reason. So anytime I've gone through a period in life that's been difficult or challenging or full of uncertainty, when you look back, you always go, aha, okay, there was a reason why. And so, so whenever I ha I'm faced with that, those moments in life that are a little bit difficult, I always, what I always ask is, what am I supposed to be learning right now? I'm supposed to be learning something. There's a reason why this is happening. What am I supposed to be learning that right now? I wanna make sure that whatever challenges, whatever life sort of curveball is, that is the question I always ask. What am I supposed to be learning from this? It's okay to go through some period, but I just wanna make sure that I come out of it with some enrichment of, obviously not monetary, but some, lesson that I've learned. So the question for me is, what am I supposed to be learning right now? Every time I've spoken with you, I've noticed how central you put the art or the act of tasting wine to your dialogue about learning. And it almost feels like a somewhat of a personal journey. And it, it feels like something that you want to mentor to other people. So I feel like it, it's probably a lot more significant than maybe I might assume about a lot of other people. And, you know, we all enjoy to drink wine. We all taste wine. I mean, a lot of people taste wine professionally, but for you, it seems to be a real keystone. Are there particular moments in your own evolution as a taster that were standout moments for you, particular moments where someone said to you or did something that were key? And what were they? Yeah, but it's never, it's never been about me. What I want to do is help people figure out what they like. 
to make that light bulb go off. I have a lot of friends who are not wine people. They're finance people. They're my friends from business school. They're whatever, not serious wine people. And when they come over to our house and I open a Cedric Bouchard champagne or a Dovisat Chablis or a Litterai Pinot Noir or a Bartolo Mascarello Barolo or a Sina Quinan Syrah, or wines that nobody ever sees because they're not available basically unless you really are in the know. And what I love is watching that light bulb go off for people. That moment when somebody says, wow, I love Chablis or this is an incredible Syrah. What I like is basically seeing, giving pleasure to other people with wine and seeing that light bulb go off. Pierre Peter's Le Chatillon. What is that supposed to be? What is Dom Perignon supposed to be? And what Venice is all about is making that light bulb go off for millions of people all over the world. So yes, there are seminal moments, but they're really not about me as much as they are about understanding how do we get other people to figure out what they like. I don't care if you want to drink a $15 Chianti or a $1,500 bottle of Screaming Eagle. What Venice wants to do is give you the information to make a decision that you're going to be happy with. So yes, it's about learning, but ultimately it's about empowering the end person. So this era of the wine critic as this expert on some pedestal, like it was in the generation of Clive Coates or Bob or maybe even Jancis where there's the critic and then there's all of us people below, that those are values of another generation that are not the values of today. Today, you can get anybody's email if you want. You can email Tim Cook if you want. You can get a cell phone number. You can communicate with anybody that you want to today in a very flat way because that is the value of this society. And Venice is created for today. And my view is I want to talk with our reader and our hopefully our potential readers who are many more than our current, obviously. I want to have that conversation across the table. I've never viewed myself as being on some pedestal because I didn't, when I was starting out, I didn't want to be spoken to that way. So why, I, you know, I, I knew something about wine. I mean, I grew up in a family where there was wine. I wasn't a total ignoramus. And I, and I start with the assumption because Venice is a positive, real force of positivity. I start off with the assumption that people are smart, that they have a good palate and they just want to learn a little bit more. I do not take the assumption that people are stupid, need to be spoon-fed information, and can't figure stuff out for themselves. I assume that people, we're all on a journey. People want to just increase their learning. The thing about wine is that it's ever, it's forever. You're never going to know everything. We want to give people the tools to make their own decision. And we're going to speak to people across the table. We're not on some, I'm not on some pedestal. I mean, yeah, sure, I get to taste a lot of wines that other people don't, but you know what? As I was told, as I was taught very early on, there's always somebody who knows more about any given wine than you do. And fine. <laughs> so whatever. I, yeah, I've got friends who drink DRC Montrachet like it's San Pellegrino. God bless their soul, you know? Or, or friends who drink Monfortino like, you know, it's coffee in, in the sense that it's a, they have it all the time. They've been buying it since before it became that, ex, you know, very expensive. Uh, our reader is a person who is generous, who has an incredible knowledge. You know, one of my readers earlier this year said, I've got every vintage of Dunhowell Mountain. Can we do a dinner? <laughs> I mean, there were a few missing, but for the most part, it was pretty much almost every vintage of Dunhowell Mountain. And we got a group of people together and we put it together. I mean, this person could probably teach me about these wines for, for crying out loud, you know? So, so sure, maybe if I go to Napa Valley and spend three weeks there, maybe I have a 
a breadth because I've tasted everything that you know that people are likely pretty much everything that people are likely to be interested in, and there's some value in that. But for any wine, there's always somebody who is going to know it better than me. There are people who've had more more DRC, more more Cristal, more Monfortino, more Dunn, more Harlan Estate, more Colgan, more whatever you want. Gallo Hardy Burgundy or Gallo Hardy Burgundy. So I I always say you know. I mean, it is really about learning. The thing about Venice is we've got everything, like right now, If we've every week we have a wine under $25. So this week is a Fiano di Avellino, Ciro Picariello, beautiful, 25 bucks, great, handmade artisan wine. And then we have, you know, Devogue Musigny. So it's kind of all things wine. Everything from, you know, the idea is that wine does not have to be collectible or expensive to be good, to be delicious, to have really good values. And so we try to cover that whole spectrum. But for me, it's really more about the idea that today's world is very flat. And I'm, what, I'm, what keeps me up at night is thinking about empowering the end person. That is, we have a lot of ideas that are in development now about how to do that because we're just eight, an 18-month-old company. This is just the very, very beginning. I mean, if people think that Venice is, just because we've bought you know, the IWC that Venice is meant to sort of replicate the wine advocate or something like that. I, you know, people have, uh, it's just a, that would be a very incorrect assumption to reach this. What we want to build is a transformational life-changing company that uses technology and media to bring scale to people, to bring this information on a scale that has never really been done before. That's why we do so much with video. We'll be doing more. That's why we do a lot with technology, but ultimately we want to reach millions of people, not thousands or tens of thousands. So we're obsessed with trying to figure out the keys that unlock that for people. So it's been a few years of events now. How have you tweaked them? What's worked and what hasn't worked? We have found that our preference now is to do smaller events between 25 and 40 people. I think it's a more manageable number. That's something that we've learned. I think it allows for more interaction with people. What we're moving towards is a model of doing perhaps more events, but smaller and then more diversified. So at the beginning, it was really focused on Italian wine, mostly because, you know, while we're not going to do a Burgundy event, I mean, I have no, you know, I mean, that's really Daniel Jonas's milieu and nobody does it better. So there's no, I don't have any interest in also in, in doing something that's been done before either too much. So it started off with Barolo and then, you know, Tuscan wines, but now we're going to start to do Napa Valley in the spring. I'd love to do something with champagne. But to me, what I've learned is, one, we want to keep it small where possible. Festa del Barolo is kind of an exception, but that has now kind of a its own following and we don't have enough seats for people. So I, yeah, I can't see that becoming smaller. But there'll be other things that'll be more thematic. We're going to do a 2010 Napa Valley Cabernet tasting that'll be probably for 40 or 50 people, but a lot of really great wines. I'd like to do something with champagne. And I also like to do something that's more, um, I'd like to find ways to work more closely with chefs to create things that are really experiences. Uh, because ultimately I think that's what an event really is. People now, there's a lot of wealth in the world. So money is no longer really a differentiator. So the question is, well, what is? And one of the things that it can be a differentiator if you do it right is a memory, an event. My preference is definitely towards creating experiences. So there's educational dimension is across multiple levels. It's the public, it's Psalms who maybe don't have an opportunity to travel as much or taste these wines necessarily all the time. There's lots of different layers to the educational component. 
the producers themselves don't often taste their own colleagues' wines. So it's educational for them as well. And I want that point to really be hammered home. So that's always a key component in any tasting that we do. There's got to be some, some value. Otherwise, we're just like anybody else who does dinners and events. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not differentiating and it's not our mission. Our mission is I want you to taste every vintage of Montfortino back to 1970 from Magnum all together. That's historic. It's educational. It's culturally enriching as on top of being just a hell of a lot of fun. But that's a theme for us is the educational component. Antonio Galoni of Venice Media. He'd like to be the electricity that turns on the lights for millions of people. Thank you very much for being here today. Levy, it's a pleasure. Happy New Year. Antonio Galoni of Venice Media. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.